Hi friends, this is Josh from Narrate. This past weekend was the second part of Narrate's series, Give and Take. Adam talked about certain characteristics of takers and how these contrast examples of interdependence in the Bible. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, so I was 21 years old. Uh, the first time someone uh, looked across the table from me and identified that I'm not a very good team player. In fact, he, he said it a little bit more matter-of-factly than that. Uh, he looked across the table and said, we're not talking this situation in particular, but I've known you for a while now, and you kind of stink at being a team player. And in hindsight, it was a really difficult thing for him to say. And in hindsight, uh, he loved me a, a whole bunch. And quite frankly, in hindsight, he was, he was very accurate. Uh, he's identifying something that I'm predisposed to uh, and, and always have been and continue to struggle with today. Uh, and, and, and for my part, I, I'm going to argue that I arrived at it fairly honestly. Uh, I'm an introvert by nature, which, as my friend Jim says, introverts like to be alone but not lonely. I don't like to necessarily work on teams. I'm privileged to work on this great team around here. I like it when my office door is closed. And when I was in school and teachers would say, hey, you, this is a group assignment, I was like, who likes those? Those are terrible ideas. All it means is one person works for four. That's all it means. So, so there's the introvert thing going on. And the other part of that is, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the StrengthsFinder. I'm sure some of you are the StrengthsFinder 2.0 assessment. Uh, it is, it's my favorite kind of personality test. It's put out by the Gallup organization. Part of what I love about it is it doesn't have any kind of a spiritual lens over top of it. Uh, my, my top strength, so it gives you your top five of what I think they observe to be 31 in the human spectrum. My, my top strength uh, is responsibility. And you know how they res- d- define responsibility? I think a bunch of you have it, actually, because I think I'm... A, um, uh, an egotistical leader, and we kind of reflect to people what we want, right? And so we attract like, tracks like. Uh, but, but responsibility, uh, the way they describe it is people with responsibility, they, they, don't, they don't do anything lukewarm. Like either you're vested and your hands are in the soil or you don't care, right? Like you, you have a hard time caring about something that you're not personally connected to. And you're laughing because you can see that in yourself. I remember when I took this assessment, this, this person who said this to me about 10 years before this, so I took the test in my early 30s, uh, he looked across the table at the guy who was technically my direct report at the time and kind of laughed and said, see, I told you. And I, that's when I learned that they've been talking about me. Um, my second strength is uh, on that deal is significance. And this one's a little jaded. It's a little dark. I remember even initially talking with it with my wife. I'm like, that one gets gross pretty quick. You know how they define significance? Uh, you, don't like just, you don't just like to do things well. You like to do them different than everybody else. Like not on a building. That's one example of that perhaps. But, but what that means is when you sit in a room with seven other people and they all go like, hey, we think you should do this. You're that guy or gal who's naturally predisposed to go, no, I don't think we should do it that way. Why? Because you all think we should do it that way. So all that to say that as I look at like my wiring, I can see that, that there's a real honest struggle that I have with being a team player. But here's my point in bringing this up. And really what's driving this series, what makes me excited about the content that's pushing this series is, is at 21 years old, I, I didn't just decide, well, I stink at this. Now, like some of you, I, I can look across the table at my wife and go, she is naturally much more predisposed to be a giver than I am. But I hold out hope that I can change. More so, I hold out hope that in the real-time decisions that we make, that's why I love the image of a maze for this whole conversation, that is in, in a given hour, in a given day, in a given week, in a given life, as I make a series of decisions, whether to go left or right or straight, I'm deciding real-time what to be. And I hold out hope that this God can change me and help me make 
giving decisions. This is something that the scriptures have always talked about. This is why in the Old Testament, you see people's names change from like Abram to Abraham. It's, it, it points to this God changes people. Paul in 2 Corinthians said to these people, go ahead to the next slide. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Paul is grabbing hold of something that we take for granted as people who are at the very least impacted by Western Christianity. And he's identifying that, that grace can change us. So I say all that to say my interest in this series, and I understand there's, there's been some pushback. I've had some actually fun conversations about that pushback. I welcome that. We say we don't want to have the last word in the conversation. We just want to start them. I just prefer if you wouldn't tell me to my face when you don't agree with me. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> kind of. Uh, kind of. Um, some, some of the pushback I've heard is, and, and I think it's very fair, is one, one guy said, well, to, to, to be a giver, you have to be a taker especially in business, right? Like if you're ever going to give anything, you've got to take something. Now, I'm going to challenge the use of the word take in that conversation, uh, but, but, but I, I can see that, that conversation and go, yeah, yeah, who, okay. But the other one is that if we're not careful, what we're creating is some kind of a rubric, some kind of a matrix by which we judge people, right? By which we go, give or taker, give or taker. It becomes this thing, this lens we lay over our interactions. And again, I'm still going to argue that the research says that predisposition-wise, that holds somewhat true, but that's not really my interest in this conversation. Myself as a Christ follower, some of you as Christ followers, some of you as people who are intrigued by Christ, it seems to me the question is, how do we live it? How do we be more giving people? And, and to me, what this series allows us to do is go, okay, so what are the best practices? We study them in everything else. We study them in medicine. We, we study them in, in business and in law. We're constantly going like, what are the best tried and true practices? What we have here is, so when people are able to click into the giving mindset. Not are they or are they not naturally predisposed. When they're able to click in, what kinds of things are they doing? What allows them? And when people click out of it, what are the signs that they've actually started to be a taker? That, that, that's my interest in what's driving this series. And to the idea that you can't always be a giver, well, that's why we're going to end the series by talking about boundaries because that's accurate. We, we gotta, there's a whole conversation here. So, to jump into that, this morning what I really want to talk about is givers as it relates uh, to being a team player. And to do so, I want to start with a story about a guy who uh, several decades ago started his life uh, in the worst of poverty and ended it living the American dream. He, he, was, he was born and raised in Missouri. His family didn't own a farm, but they worked farms. They traveled from farm to farm. Uh, most of them were the poorest of the poor farms. Many of the farms he grew up on lacked indoor plumbing to help his family make ends meet. He would work not only the farm that his dad had committed to being a hand on, but work other farms and help them do some farming. He had multiple paper routes to help. Like, we're not talking so that he could get his own iPhone. We're talking so that, like, the family could eat. He eventually went to college at the University of Missouri, uh, graduated with honors, put himself through college, by the way, then graduated with a master's and ultimately a doctorate uh, in economics. And from there, he committed his life to public service, per his words. He joined the Navy, uh, spent many years serving in the Navy, was, was, when he ultimately got out, had lots of honors and awards behind his name, commended as being a giving person. From there, he went to work for national defense. And, and again, after a career in national defense, was celebrated as a giver. Then he started his own company, a company that for 15 years, he was chairman and CEO of that company. By the time he resigned... The company's value was $110 billion. They had over 20,000 employees in over 40 countries. For, or Fortune magazine 
uh, named th- th- this company five years running the most innovative com- company in the country. And during those five years, they were consistently in, in Fortune's top 25 list of the best corporations in the company to work for. Uh, he was once asked during his tenure uh, about his moral philosophy, and he said this. Go ahead, next slide. He said, respect, the golden rule, absolute integrity. Everybody knows that I personally have a very strict code of personal conduct that I live by. And, and he did live it. Uh, he started a family foundation. They, they, in the course of these 15 years, gave $4.5 million to over 250 not-for-profit organizations. His, his company itself committed to giving 1% of their profits to, to not-for-profit organizations. And in fact, uh, then-President George W. Bush publicly proclaimed him a generous, kind man. Then he was indicted. His name is Kenneth Lay. Uh, he's most famously known as the chief villain of the Enron scandal. Those of you not familiar with Enron, Enron was a commodity, securities, and energy company based out of Houston, Texas. Enron specialized in these types of things. And Enron, uh, they, they got themselves in some trouble. In 2001, in October of 2001, Enron, Enron reported what at the time were record losses for the third quarter. They recorded a $613 million loss for the third quarter of that fiscal year. The result was they lost $1.1 billion in shareholder equity uh, at this point. Two months later, in December of 2001, Enron went bankrupt, gone. 20,000 employees instantly went from one of the most secure, prestigious companies in the world to no job. 20,000 employees, almost to the one, watched their life savings disappear like that. Now, investigators would learn that there were all kinds of things going on with Enron. Uh, they, they, they learned, f- first of all, that they, they were manipulating the energy markets in Texas and California. They learned that many of the national or, excuse me, international contracts that they had won, they won by bribing the governments in which they were working. They, they learned lots and lots of things about him. He was ultimately indicted on six counts of perjury, of fraud. Now, we can debate how much he knew, and that is still very much debated. He, he actually died before he was fully prosecuted. But the evidence was there that he was a taker. Looking back now, that they can see that, that in the final years of his leadership, he insisted that his lunches be brought to him on silver platters and fine china. One woman uh, who worked for the company told the story of when she tried to book a flight for one of the executives, a business flight, mind you. Uh, she was told that the, the three corporate jets weren't available for the foreseeable future because the Lay family was on vacation. In a span of a couple years from 1997 to 1998, we, we now know that Enron paid $4.5 million in commission to a travel agency that his sister-in-law owned. Now, this one's debated a little bit more, but many believe that in the moments before the collapse, uh, he cashed out of $70 million worth of stock. So he got his treasure off the ship, if you know what I mean, before the ship went down. Now, we can debate how much he knew. But we really can't debate that, that he had become a taker. The evidence was all there. But here to me is where his story gets fascinating. Because if you read about those documenting his story, and I don't want the tragedy of it to get lost in the example of it, but many will say he was a taker. Like that's who he was. And yet when you read his story, when you listen to his story, you go, well, wait a minute. He wasn't always a taker. Was he, in fact, a faker his whole life? There's evidence all over where he had extended years of public service. He grew up on a farm helping his family make ends meet. He he went to college and put himself through college. There's all kinds of evidence of his being a giver, which raises this question. Was he just naturally and always a taker? 
Or did he get in a rut? Did he start making some decisions? Did he start missing some signs that he had clicked over from one mentality and into another? You know, I, I used to work for a guy and when we were serving high school students together. Uh, he was always quick to point out uh, homeless men and women, not to objectify them, but when with a student in particular, and in fact, we would take these trips to urban San Francisco and work with these homeless teens because that's kind of a corridor for it to make this very point. He, he, would just, he would love to say to students, what you need to understand when you look at that homeless woman, that homeless man, is the difference between her and you could possibly just be one or two decisions. That you're not maybe is different. Now, is there some other factors at times? Of course there are. But, but just one or two decisions separate us. What, what if that's what happened to Kenneth Lay? What if in some sense he's like a lot of us and had these good intentions and had these ambitions and then got stuck making a series of decisions? Well, if that's true, the research would say what Adam Grant, who wrote this book, Give and Take, and led all of this research, he, he would say that, that when, when we shift, and this is the way I want to encourage you to think about it, not so much like are you or aren't you, but when you shift, maybe in an argument with a spouse, maybe in a conversation with your kid, maybe while negotiating a salary, maybe in a conflict at work, when you shift from giver to taker, what they say is you start leaking clues, that an emotionally aware person can see the evidence of that, or what Adam Grant calls lecking clues. Now, lecking is this phrase in the animal kingdom, uh, a scientific phrase that captures the reality that, that when animals are going to mate, the dudes who are always egotists, uh, they, they get together and they, they do things to impress the ladies, right? Like they sing songs, they do acrobats, they, 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 they str- peacocks, in the case of a peacock, they strut that weird line and flaunt their feathers and do the 180 degree turn, that there's this lecking that happens. None of you think that's funny? I think it's hilarious. Because... In, in junior high, there's Axe body spray, right? Like that's, that, that's, we all do some lecking. What they say is that the, the lecking, it, it continues to happen when you shift. And there's a few different things that they point out. I want to get through a couple of them because I really want to dig into the third one. The first one they say is that takers use more first person pronouns. That one of the signs that you've clicked, whether it be in an argument with a friend or a spouse or in a negotiation at work, one of the signs that you've clicked into a taker mindset is you use the word I more and more and more. Now, that's helpful to me because I find that I really use the word I a lot in the month of December because it's stressful and I'm a jerk. Second one, uh, they, they say that, that takers treat people below them poorly and people above them well. Now, you've been on the receiving end of this. Uh, C.S. Lewis said years ago that if many of us treated our children the way we treat our friends, we wouldn't have any friends. Why? Because kids can't do anything for us. One rabbi said, well, whoop de doo if you treat the people who, who like you this, like you like them. Like, that doesn't mean anything. How do you treat the people below them? Kenneth Lay's story is full of these examples where he consistently treated people poor, below him poorly and above him like a saint. But the third one, and this is the one where I really want to drill down, I think there's lots of handles here, is they say that takers want independence. That one of the telltale signs is you begin to loathe interdependence. That there becomes this desire to prove that you're doing way more than everybody else and you're carrying all the weight, be it of a family or an organization or anything else. Now, in 1991, uh, the American Architects Association named Frank Lloyd Wright the were the, the country's most influential architect ever. And those of you who are students of architecture or even art will recognize Frank Lloyd Wright as being this incredibly influential architect. Uh, many of his buildings are still celebrated today, the Guggenheim Museum being one of them. 
And in the first quarter of the 20th century, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, he was incredibly proficient. He lived in the urban Chicago area. He worked with sculptors and builders. He was influenced by the urban culture that he was in. He was designing and creating these buildings faster than anybody else ever had and with more artistic uh, talent than anyone had ever shown. But in 1911, he had an idea. And his idea was to relocate to rural Wisconsin. He just wanted to eat cheese all day long and watch the Packers. I don't know. (laughs) He wanted to move to rural Wisconsin. He wanted to live remotely and almost entirely alone. He wanted to work alone. He would maybe bring some staff, but they would just be these unimportant underlings. He, what they say, was stepping into this reality where he was starting to believe that he didn't need anyone else to bring his creative genius to the world. In 1924, he actually moved to remote Wisconsin. He lived there for nine years. One biographer says that by the end of those nine years, he was virtually unemployed. For a two-year span, he didn't collect a single commission on a project. In fact, uh, one biographer looking back on his life said that during those nine years, he was 35 times, not percent, 35 times less productive than over the rest of the scope of his life. See, what the research would say is he was lacking clues. He was starting to believe that he was all that mattered and that he was responsible for all of his success. Adam Grant says it this way. He he says, Wright's story points out that takers attribute success to themselves while givers attribute it to the group. Now, a couple guys at at Harvard, uh, who they tend to be intellectual, smart people, uh, they wanted to create a scientific study to back up the idea that as a surgeon performs an operation over and over and over again, they get better at it. And so these guys, uh, they in the end assembled 203 unique surgeons who over a two-year span would do almost 39,000 coronary bypass operations. I was going to, I had some really good pictures to pick from on Google Images, but after that whole edema thing, I figured you guys wouldn't appreciate that. So we just went a little innocuous with the picture. Remember the foot? I need to help you remember the foot. I didn't know how much I could scar you with the foot. So what they did is they they studied these, these surgeons Uh, And what they wanted to see, at the time, the the national average or the the industry average was that 3% of people who get coronary bypass surgery die as a result. So they're successful on average 97% of the time. What they wanted to know was that as a surgeon performs the same procedure over and over and over again, does 3 become 2 and become 1%? Does 97 become 98 and 99%? They wanted to see if that happens, and guess what occurred? It was true, but with a qualifier. What they found was that those surgeons who performed their operations, because most of them, uh, they would do the majority of their procedures in one or two of the 40 hospitals, and then every once in a while would be called to do another operation in a different hospital that they normally don't work in. What they found was that they became more successful at the procedure, at the operation, only to the degree that they were working with the staff that they normally worked with in the hospital they most normally performed the procedure in. What they found is that when they took a doctor who had maybe pushed it to 1%, who was suddenly 99% of the time the patient lived, what they found was when they took that doctor out of his context, away from the anesthesiologist and the nurses and the staff and the room he normally worked in, and put him in another hospital with equally as qualified a people, he was just average or she was just average again. Adam Grant says it this way. He says, the surgeon... I need to turn around on this one. The surgeons couldn't take their performance with them. They were becoming more and more 
familiar with particular nurses and anesthesiologists, learning about their strengths and weaknesses, habits, and styles. To be successful, they needed interdependence. Now, uh, another group of highly uh, educated and uh, incredibly uh, kind of niche career are, are investment analysts. We're not talking here about your stockbroker. We're talking about the people who tell uh, your stockbroker what stocks to buy and which ones to sell and when to do it. This is a highly competitive field. The best of the best of the best command very handsome salaries. And because of that, it's a very competitive field and they're often switching firms. They did a similar study. They wanted to know if, if we take like this top five in the world investment analyst and we move her or we move him from this firm that he's been with for a while into this other firm, does she or he get the same results? Guess what they found? Not for five years that on average it took five years for that analyst to get back to the place that they were before. What is that? What, what, if, what if interdependence is paramount? And what if it's true that one of the signs that you're operating from a taking mindset is you're starting to go more and more like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't need anybody else. I could do this. I could do this anywhere. I, I'm it. Now some of you are going, is the Bible in this message? Here, here we go. Uh, Roman household codes. Uh, Now, to me, this gets fascinating, and I don't want to go too far into it, but in ancient Rome, they they had traditional family values, so to speak. Part of what's funny to me when you say, like, we need to uphold traditional family values is like, well, whose traditional family values are we talking about? Because all cultures have had traditional family values. And in ancient Rome, the traditional family values were that male head of household. And part of the dynamic of the Roman culture, because they, like any large kingdom, wanted to protect their, their order, is that when a new idea, a new spirituality, a new method, a new culture filtered into the kingdom, one of the first things that, that the Roman culture started to ask intuitively was, is this a threat to our normal household codes? They wanted to know, like, is this going to disrupt it at all? Now, as an example of one of those codes, here's one from Aristotle, which won't make any sense, but at least I'll feel like I've read some historical background to you. Uh, He says, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of the master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over the wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, over his wife being a constitutional rule. I have no idea what he's saying other than the traditional family value where where dudes are in charge, leave it, like it or not. So what would happen in in the Roman culture, in the historical culture, is that when this idea came in, if you were serious about your idea lasting, making it, not getting the adherents killed, then what you would do is you would issue your spirituality's household code. You would issue like, here's here's this new belief system, this new culture, here's our traditional family value, here's our household code. But of course, all it would do is uphold that of like Aristotle and everybody else's because what you were doing was making peace with the empire. Well, in the first century AD, uh, the ideas filtering into the Roman empire with the the most frequency came from the east. They came from Judaism and and from this, this rabbi named Jesus which would mean historically you would expect that the influencers of this movement to issue a household code saying like, hey, don't kill us. We want peace. And twice in the New Testament, Paul issues a household code. Ephesians being one of them. You, you, you may recognize it. You may recognize it as some of the most controversial stuff in all the New Testament. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Does that sound familiar? The answer is no. 
verse, or chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And it's super helpful. Uh, verse 4. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's a tough one. Five. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. So in a sense, Paul's playing along. He's playing by the rules. He's going like, hey, so here's the traditional family value. But not entirely. In fact, what he's doing is subverting the whole thing. Paul is a revolutionary. He is con- Paul got himself killed by the Roman Empire, remember, as did many Christians in this time. Why? Because I actually manipulated the whole thing. I skipped the first verse of the household code. The first verse of the household code, the reason I skipped it, verse 21, is because if you look at your Bible, and many, many of our Bibles, you know, the whole editor added section headings, The household code starts, it'll say something like instructions for Christian households. It almost always starts above verse 22, but it shouldn't because the modifier to the entire thing is actually in verse 21. And here's verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You can all take a deep breath now. (laughs) Here's the deal. Paul says, hey, so here's the household code. How about everybody in the family just serve one another? That's subversive. How about the husband serve the wife, not just the wife, the husband? That'll get you killed. In fact, uh, original language scholars will, will, will point out that in verse 21, you have the word submit. In verse 22, you don't. In the original language, the word submit's not even there. To read this passage literally, you would read verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, and wives to your husbands. Now the question is, Well, wives to husbands, what? Well, the modifier is in 21. Or as one uh, commentator says it, the more technical language, uh, perhaps, is that verse 22, along with everything through 6, 9, borrows the word submit from verse 21. So really, if you were to read it literally, but uh, in, in kind of a not literal way, like the, the, the real take here, the hermeneutic here, to get technical, sounds something like this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your wives. Children, submit to your parents. Parents, submit to your children. Slaves, submit to your masters. Masters, submit to your slaves. This Paul, following this Jesus, introduces this incredibly subversive idea that interdependence is the ideal relational form. Adam Grant says it this way. He says, Givers reject the notion that interdependence is weak. Givers are more likely to see interdependence as a source of strength, a way to harness the skills of multiple people for greater good. Some people call it expedition behavior. Expedition behavior refers uh, to the idea, uh, we will use this within our staff sometimes, like the project's the win, the project's the win. Expedition behavior would say, this isn't about you or me, this is about what's the project, what's the win, it gets to determine what wins. Because when you're on a project, say to the top of Mount Everest, it's, it's the expedition that wins. Galatians and Paul says it this way, again, another very subversive thing, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Maybe we could end here. Uh, there's another technical phrase. I found this to be really helpful. It's called responsibility bias. Uh, responsibility bias simply notes that the natural tendency of all of us is to, is to overemphasize your contribution and underemphasize everybody else's. 
And you analyze your fights, and, and I'll bet you you'll begin to see this dynamic where what's happening is you, you can see what you contribute, and you take for granted what everybody else does. In one, one of these studies, they, they took couples and individually asked them, what percentage of the relationship are you responsible for? Like, what part do you carry? Of course, the idea is, is that if they're at all accurate, it adds up to 100, right? Guess what they found? What do you suppose the sum of those two parts tended to be? You suppose it was like 40, 80? No. 120, 125, 130. What happens? This isn't just in a marriage. This isn't between, just between parents and kids. This is on teams. This is among roommates. What happens in business? Suddenly, we can see what we can do. And we totally take for granted what that person can do. Whether that person is below you, like, oh, we could hire anybody to do that. Or that person's above you. Like, he, they're, they're a jerk. They don't even know what they're doing. It's because of us that we're successful. You know how the research says you break away from responsibility bias? It sounds something like this. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know what the research says how you break down responsibility bias? Gratitude. That, that your natural predisposition is to focus on what you contribute. And those people who do this well, Jim Collins talks about this in Great by Choice, one of my favorite books ever. He says, level five leaders, when things are going well, they look out the window. And when things are going poorly, they look in the mirror. What is that saying? That when things are going well, they understand that the chief contributors aren't themselves. And when things are going poorly, they start with themselves. Why is blame one of the first things that comes up in the garden, in the story in the garden? Well, how much of an issue is it in your life? What the research would say is, is what you have to do as a boss, as a spouse, as a parent, as a community member, is you've got to intentionally pay attention to thank you notes, whatever that looks like, to, to where you are forcing yourself to focus on what they contribute. So, 17-year-old students, what happens when we start going like, wait a minute, what, to what can I attribute my, like, how can I recognize that my parents contribute to this thing? And yet, to you, parent of frustrated 17-year-old, what, what happens when we, we don't just focus on what we give or boss or employee or, or, or spouse? Listen, is it any wonder uh, that, that 2,000 years later, we continue to marvel at, at the historical Jesus? That this, this man who the more power, the more prestige, the, the more accolades he got, the, the more he gave. The more it was emphasized that he was it, he kept going like, yeah, yeah but I'm, I'm, here, I'm here to serve. Listen, I, I don't know what the struggle is, what the opportunity is. I don't know what the team you're on is or what the family dynamic looks like. Here's, here's the one story that I'm trying to tell this morning, the, the one challenge I'm trying to bring forward. What happens if we start watching for the use of the word I? What, what, what happens if we can catch ourselves going, wait a minute, I'm justifying treating them poorly because they're below me and can't do anything for me. And what, what happens? What happens if we begin to watch for this tendency to go, I don't need you. I can't. I can do all of this on my own. What, what happens when we step into the historic pattern of Jesus where he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I came to serve. And as Zig Ziglar said years ago, like I, I just believe that, that if I help other people meet their needs, then, then mine too will be met. I'd like to pray, and we're going to be a chance to reflect through a song. God, lots here and lots of dynamics represented in the people in this room. And Jesus, thankful that 
what, what no person here could know specifically you do. Uh, that you're not just a corporate God, but a personal God. That you know the stories, you know the challenges, you know the struggles, you know the frustrations. You know the specifics. And so Jesus, as we try to reconcile life and when to step into being a giver and when to create boundaries and when to identify that, that we're being a taker, God, would, would you give us wisdom to see that, to catch ourselves? Would, would you give us this supernatural self-awareness that you would catch us when we start going the way of, of the taker? Jesus, would you would give us the kind of uh, humility that requires us to, to ask for forgiveness and yet the kind of understanding that knows that shame's not your game? Jesus, we wouldn't be in this room if we weren't attracted on some level uh, to making our lives about giving. And so would you make us wise in those intentions? Would you help us live, us out, live it out very well? Thanks, God, for, for the sciences uh, that you affirm and reaffirm over and over and over again that you and your historic truth are not at odds with, with science, that that you're telling the same story. Jesus, in our work, in our family, in our friendships, in our community, would you, would you give us wisdom and the courage then to do it? Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.